0: On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I ad lib, and we talk about a bunch of different ways of uh, handicapping games or of trying to beat the market. We talk a little bit about some of the work that Rufus is doing to prepare for the upcoming football season, and then finally, we go to one of our like constant, most droning on subjects around the, why don't more American books use the penny model.
1: That's not true. Uh, we don't talk about that. Anyways... Without, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, bet. Bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie-cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a town with the
0: narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking. We're looking for the edge in Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The Welcome to a uh, off-season episode. We, we haven't talked to each other
1: in a long time, Rufus, or do you miss me? I, I miss you very much, Jeff. Are you still just Finishes traveling all around?
0: Yes, I'm traveling. I'm in New York right now, and I don't have my normal mic. Well, I have my small mic, but um, I pulled a Rufus Peabody, and I don't actually have a cable that goes with it. So, But I didn't finish. So this is the Beth of Process podcast, in case you were wondering. And uh, we're going to jump into some off-season stuff. First of all, I wanted to ask Rufus why you're such a coward, and when you get challenged to a hundred thousand dollar Westgate super contest challenged by a tout, why you refuse it. Did you, do you hear what he said to you?
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I blocked this guy cause he, he, he scammed somebody before and they, they messaged me on Twitter and basically asked for my help to try to get a refund from them. Cause it, this person had some sort of free trial money back guarantee and, and she wasn't happy with it. And, he wouldn't give her money back. And so I kind of called him out and then he's upset because, and and I I happened to find that this guy had like eight different touting sites registered to his like address. Someone pointed that out to me. So totally a scam artist, but you know, even if it wasn't a scam artist, like even if it was just some random internet stranger who, you know, like what's the upside to that? I, I give this person like publicity and I risk like, you know, not getting paid. So if I'm going to pay if I lose, and I don't know if the other guy is going to pay if he loses. Well,
0: he said he was going to put the money in escrow with uh, people that you both know. He said a mutual
1: friend. I don't think we have mutual friends. But is this because you don't have very many friends or because you think he doesn't have very many friends? What are you trying to... What do you... It's a good question. Well, you know, I don't have very many friends, Jeff. That's uh, not true. You have lots of friends. I, was actually know, meeting I hope we like, don't right. run in the same circles. I
0: was meeting with a... High-ranking league official in a sport yesterday, and he was making uh, a reference to someone, to someone that he didn't like. That was kind of like a content person in sports, and he, he said your name, but he didn't mean you. I think it's just your name has a, has, resonates with people so much.
1: Was it Darren Ravel? Because we both the Ravel and Rufus both start with R. Yeah, but Ravel's not his first name either. That Darren that's, is. It's true. Most people call him Ravel. I think. Um,
0: So can I finish telling you what how this guy called you out? He called you out with he put a stack of hundreds, seven stacks that were up to 100k. He leafed through them. He said, since Rufus Peabody tried calling me out on Twitter and then blocked me, I'm challenging him to a 100k Westgate Super Contest challenge. We will have a mutual friend hold the money. You have a week to take me up on it, Rufus. And he said, well, I don't know why he wouldn't do this. He bets $200 on golf. He said that in his little video. So he really called you out. And
1: I think you're, you know, my response. What's that? I didn't respond to him directly because people, I kept getting messages from people on Twitter saying, are you going to do the challenge? And I was like, what challenge? (laughs) And so someone, someone so linked you it.
0: You blocked him like a, you him like an effing coward.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want him on my timeline anymore. And he was trying to, trying to use me to sort of build his profile. I mean, that's the whole point but of You don't want to that. be someone's stepping stone is what you're saying. No, I don't. And I don't want to, I don't want to give a scam artist publicity. All right. Well, which we're doing right now, actually. But I mean, this guy was, a, you know, clearly a scam artist and there's no, you know, I don't, I don't see the value of having any more Twitter conversations with him. So.
0: Do you that's think we it. should enter the Westgate contest again this year, the two of us? Why
1: not? That might be fun.
0: Yeah, we have to find a proxy and we've got to do the whole thing. And, and we'll probably have to put up the money ourselves this time. But that means, you know, when we win, we'll win
1: lots of money. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole headache, the proxy thing.
0: Well, and the other headache, too, is just like the, the stale lines and the fact that we talk about the, you know, with the picks on Thursday or Friday. And I don't think we put ourselves in the best chance to win. And, and hence the nature of why contests are sort of silly. They don't really demonstrate the true value of a, of a handicapper, right?
1: No, not at all. It's definitely not a handicapping contest. And and even if I, you know, let's say I went up against the scam artist, you know, doing, I guess it's super contest rules for $100,000 bet. Like, you know, what do you think the odds I win are, Jeff? Uh, what would you price like it at? 50, oh, what would I price it at? Uh, yeah, minus
0: 85 one, games, I guess. Minus one. 40? 50? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know I'm either, I'm honestly. I, could... I have confidence in you. I mean so a lot of it. We should we bet on your ability to beat him? <laughs> well, no. And then you'll have to do it.
1: <laughs>
0: I don't know. I mean maybe if we do the super contest again, we'll do the a, a, a mini contest within the super contest. So each week you and I pick two games and then and I don't know, maybe, I, who knows? We'll have to figure out a structure that makes sense. We actually have to figure out what, what structure we want to do for the upcoming football season because last year, I think our structure was was reasonable, but I think it got too picky and less discussion-based. And I think people that listen to our podcast really like it when we just go into like discussions on things.
1: I agree. I mean, I think our off-season podcasts are generally my favorite because we really talk about industry stuff that I find interesting. And and it's not that I do don't find football work. interesting, but we get we could good guess
0: guess more interesting, more interesting than we are, which isn't very hard. So the other thing I was going to talk to you about, and you said you didn't listen to it, was that Spanky was on a Thangs podcast. Um, and he talked about sort of his approach and how it's different than like people that sort of originate lines. He called it kind of like top down versus bottoms up. And top down to him meant like sort of like looking at the number and the market and having a bunch of different outs and then kind of using, you know, uh, I would say more general information than
1: specific
0: model input information, if that makes any sense.
1: And it just – sorry, go ahead. No, so, you know, obviously he's not just picking numbers out of a hat or anything, and not just – and I don't think it's just gauging the market. I mean, I think that he has people that he knows that he respects, I would think, right, that are feeding him well, some basically information. Well,
0: he using information from the market – you know where if a specific book or something like that moves the line. He's an antidote of okay. If a specific book books the line, and you he realizes that must be someone sharp to do it. If he still sees some other numbers out there, that let's say they move it from say minus five to minus six and a half or something like that, he would then you know hammer those minus sixes or or sorry minus fives or whatever. And the the idea, I think it's just an interesting thing. It's like. Is it easier to try to, uh, you know, predict the the actual price and beat the price? Or is it better to just kind of like read information from the market and then look for value with a variety of outs?
1: Well, I think his way, I mean, what you're describing is basically chasing steam, right? It's it's making the market... He
0: has like, he has, you know, a, a unique ability to understand that steam, I think would be his, his sort of, uh, his, his, his reasoning for why he's probably better than the average steam chaser. Right. Right.
1: I know he's very well connected and I'm sure he has some more information in terms of where those yeah. bets are coming from, um, that are moving the lines probably. And so, I mean, obviously if you can identify a sharp, like a sharp line move, then it, you know, and, and there's opportunities to bet, um, books that haven't moved that like moved all the way like you know that's obviously going to be profitable long term it's yeah that seems like kind of a
0: no-brainer if you have you know enough outs around things like and and that's what like kind of Seth burn kind of gives him crap about like i don't know if you saw the tweet where seth was basically like when your business model is basically looking at chris and then looking for and then betting other you know books that aren't um the same as chris that's you need a lot of outs. That was his thing. And then Spanky was like, Oh, thanks Seth. And Seth was
1: like, Oh, that wasn't very, I wasn't. Uh, I saw that. I saw that. That was kind of funny. funny. I mean, do you think, so why do you think Spanky is such a divisive figure on Twitter? I mean, is it because, because what he's done, he's obviously like done well for himself as a better, he does it in a different way. And and I think, do you think originators kind of, he's he's very self-promoting.
0: Right, and I know that he, he, you guys—I I, I haven't met him, and you know—but everyone that I've that I like that has met him speaks very highly of him. And I don't want Thank you to get mad at me again for saying something negative. I'm not saying anything negative about him, but I do think the reason you ask me whether why
1: he's divisive is because he does basically talk about how great he is a lot on Twitter. That's true, but he never says he's the one. You know, coming up with the numbers he bets. He he's, he doesn't say he's well, like not, an originator. And do you think it has to not. do with the fact that that a lot of originators kind of think what they're doing is is kind of up here? Um, uh, I guess we're not doing a video podcast, so you can't see where <laughs> here is, but it's pretty high. Um, and are you and everybody else's feeling? You know, I should, but um, yeah, no, but everybody and, and, and something like that just is not sort of the same level of I don't know. yeah i mean i
0: think there's a certain i think there's a certain like highbrow like we're better than you probably attitude and i think his point is that you know maybe the reason he is so defensive of himself is that he feels like his methods and he knows that his methods have worked over many years and so the idea that someone who just happens to originate would tell him that they know more than him is insulting to him and so that's why he feels the need to make, you know, to talk about how well he's done and his track record, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, again, like if you ask me why he's divisive, it's, it's probably yes. One, because he doesn't originate or he's not like an originator typically, which, you know, I think is for many people like the, the badge of, of honor or whatnot. And, you know, he has a, it's an interesting take because ultimately like what he cares about most is making money I think what you care about most isn't necessarily making money. What you care about most is actually like, you know, beating, beating the market in many ways or be, beating the game. It's like you, you, you have like a, you, you would never want to be a steam chaser, right? right? You always would want to be someone that can outsmart the market by coming up with a better method to predict the score of a game.
1: Yeah, and you know what? Some uh, former business partners of mine actually were, I guess, kind of in the same as Spanky in terms of how they thought about it. It was money is money, and it doesn't really matter where it comes from. And and so, you know, when we made money from stuff that that they originated, it I didn't get nearly the same satisfaction as as when we made money from from stuff that I I originated. And obviously, this is no, nobody knew whether it was me or them except me. But just for me that like it, it, you're right. It it, it isn't just about the money. It is about sort of feeling like I'm adding value, beating this market. And and sort of it's the competitive, it's, I'm I'm competitive by nature. And
0: so you, but you enjoy the process that you're going through right now where you're trying to improve your college and you're trying to improve, you know, theoretically your golf or whatever you're trying to improve, right? You, you love that process of trying to put more, that you know signals into your model and refine your model and back test and improve and
1: all that. So you love that, right? And so, some, days that? some days I love it. What's up? Some days I love it. You know, I, I love the idea of it. These days, the right. the, the nitty gritty isn't isn't as enjoyable as it used to be. But you well, know, my point life. is, you
0: would enjoy that a lot more than writing really good programs that alerted you to line moves and screen scrape things and et cetera, et cetera. Which is, I think, more. Of what his sort of business does, right? It, it it sort of has a very, you know, good way at understanding or or quickly reacting to line moves.
1: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, Spanky's been very successful, and it's not like anybody can do that. Um, if ev- if everybody could do it that easily, then there would be a lot of people doing it. And you know, it, it you, know, you do have to write these programs. You do have to be able to identify the signal. And you know, I think they they're two different animals. And you're right that for me you know, doing it the way he did wouldn't give me sort of as much satisfaction, but um, that's me. And I think we can all do it for our own reasons.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I'm not, again, like I thought the podcast with Spanky and Ed was interesting to just hear his approach. Um, I think you and I talk a lot about the concept of like, how do you incorporate knowledge from the market or You know what like how do you regress to the market and like all that type of stuff that we've talked about i think is at the core of the difference in the two methods like his method versus your method um and ultimately um i think like in many ways like so the, the concept of constantly having to try to outsmart the market is that's a pretty tough that's a pretty tough job now especially with the markets becoming more and more efficient but being able to look for value in almost like an arbitrage type way um, seems to be, you know, a, a bit more sustainable. Like, what's that?
1: Sustainable? sustainable.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, the unsustainable part, right, is getting kicked out of places and constantly needing more and more out. And he says, like, the whole reason that he started to get on Twitter is because he wanted more and more betting partners that he could have more and more out. So. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? Everything, everything that we talked about. Because I do, I do think like you and I had talked about on this before. Like, I think you had met him. You were like, well, it, there is a question of why he's on Twitter after all the time. Right. And he said it. You know, it's because he wants those betting partners.
1: No, I think that makes a lot of yeah. sense. I mean, what he's tweeting, like, I think, is very much designed to help facilitate sort of those kind of um, connections where he gets more betting partners.
0: Yeah. How are you? What are some things that you're doing? I assume you don't want to talk about them, but what are what are maybe some high level things that you're trying to do on the college stuff?
1: Um, the college stuff, I'm trying to, I guess, become a little more player centric and less team centric oh. as much as I can. It's it's difficult. I mean, the data out there isn't isn't as good as something like you know, pro football, but mm-hmm. I, I do want to do a better job of incorporating that, incorporating like who's on the roster and how much time each guys are, you know how much playing time guys are getting and and things like that and and how talented those players are who are on the field. That, that's something I'm having to do some, uh, really tedious stuff, like merging data sets with, you know, different, um, data from different sources with, with names, with IDs that don't really match up. And you're having to try to like, say, okay, is this hometown the same as this hometown? And like, what, when you're doing it with like 150,000 data points, it's, it becomes like difficult. And honestly, it's something that, this isn't high level I guess (laughs) but you know I feel like a machine learning probabilistic merge technique would be the right way to do it and I'm sure that Um, kind of exists but um how how how
0: did you like come to this idea of like player centric modeling you know you hadn't had it before in in your model like you basically did you just like have I mean was this stuff that you had tried in in the NFL and then like are now passing it out of college or like, how did you come up with this?
1: Well, I don't think the data is good enough to do it in the way that I did in the NFL, but I mean, players do, you know, a team is the sum of its players. I think we've always known that and and injuries do matter and we've just not really been able to quantify them that, that well in the past and you know, college rosters. I think like one player does not, does not matter as much to a college team as it does to an NFL team. I think, you know, Generally, a team like Alabama, the next man up is going to be a five-star recruit probably who um, could be just as good as the starter if there's an injury. But it's important to know that, like how good this, you know, this backup that's that's coming in due to an injury actually is. And so, uh, you know, it's, I, I think in general, the market is getting sharper and sharper. And so it was, I, you know, I could beat the market without you with, with more of a team level approach in the past. And I don't know, I I guess I'm seeing the writing on the wall a little bit. If everybody's, if everybody's digging, you kind of want to zag a little bit. If everybody's doing the same thing, I want to go deeper and do something a little more unique. And, and I'm doing that not just with the player level stuff. I mean, but in terms of trying to figure out uh, in terms of the statistics I'm using and trying to process them better and figure out, you know, eliminate lock and make them as fundamental as I possibly can.
0: So can we talk a little bit about college football second half? I mean, I know for a long time we didn't want to talk about this because we thought there was a tremendous amount of value there.
1: Yeah, we can definitely talk about them.
0: I I think, I think we assume we both think that a lot of value is gone now because um, a lot of people have have worked to um, take value out of that. Um, And if you think about like the, the lesson of the logic of sports betting, um, Matt and Ed's uh, amazing book, it's almost like if you bet, second half and don't get the opening line it's almost the worst thing to be betting these days. Um, do you think that's true and and have you have you focused or are you doing anything on second halves in this offseason?
1: Yeah I, I think that is true. I've you know I had that experience last season and and honestly the last three seasons for second halves have I think been basically just break even and the problem is if, if we're getting opener if, if we don't bet the openers they move. You know, on on games where we have value, and so we're 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 not we're we're missing missing it entirely. But if we're betting the opener, we're getting like two thousand dollars on it or something like that, and so it's not really worth it to just bet that. Um, and so we end up the positions we ended up getting were ones where we had market resistance, basically where other sharps weren't on it. And so um, that's the less the lesson from uh, Matt and Ed's book right there. And so we basically had well, these positions. Awesome. The bigger positions were on things which we expected to be weaker, and that's probably why we weren't doing as well. But I think, I think something like second, second halves were the low hanging fruit for a long time. And people didn't really realize how inefficient the market was. I guess there weren't a lot of people, it wasn't a hard market to beat like, like the the process of generating my model. And, you know, I refined it, but like, let's say the the first one, I, I probably put in a total of maybe like, I don't know, 20 to 30 hours on it or something like that. I'm just guessing, but but it, it didn't take a lot of time and it wasn't like, it, it's basically just formulaic based on what, what the spread was, um, what the half, to, the, the game situation was, as well as some variables in the first half that were predictive of second half play. And like, that's you know kind of it. I mean, it was, it was nothing really complicated, but there was, you know, it worked. I mean, the market wasn't incorporating these things properly. And so, I always figured that the market, I mean, would be able to eventually do that. And I think now the edges kind of probably come from, you know, being able to notice some injuries and some other things or, or even like knowing what coach is going to do what and in what situation, which the way I've done it before was, I guess the way I did it, approached it was kind of the way I would do it if I was running a sports book. Right. This is, this is how I would, I had an algorithm that priced it overall and you know, yes, it didn't incorporate injuries. So we'd have to like keep a look out for that stuff. But, um, and it, it, it didn't really account for, you know, team specific things like saying, okay, Nick Saban is going to be much more conservative with the big lead than some other coach, for example, um, can, you know, given um, controlling for the total for the game. Right. So it, it doesn't incorporate those kinds of, uh, you know, those kinds of things. But so, so they're probably, you know, if I, if I was like booking bets based off of my model, you know, people could take advantage of, of those kinds of things. But in a way, um, since I'm, I'm taking an p- approach that basically the books are now doing or other bettors are doing, it's, you know, I think that my, my time's kind of run out on that a little bit and I need to, I need to dig a little bit deeper do something a little bit different.
0: So do you think you'll bet second half this year or what do you, what do you, or do you think you'll put less of a focus on that?
1: You know, um, my partner and I have talked a little bit. We haven't really decided yet. I I don't think it's going to be a priority, though. Before second halves were incredibly time intensive. Well, or just having to have you know traders around all day for I guess from basically from little afternoon on Saturdays to what like midnight on the East Coast. It's like twelve. It's it's a long day. It's 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 a it's it's a grind. It really is, and. And you do need somebody there to kind of monitor injuries and also to make sure that your data is correct. I mean, getting this live play-by-play data, I remember ESPN once had like a rush for negative 757 yards by Navy. And then the next play was a, you know, 780 yard rush after a penalty of negative 400 yards. So like if you don't have checks in place for things like that, um, as well as the injuries, I think you can, you can put yourself in a situation where you you might think you have an edge and you don't. And actually Jeff, one really funny situation. Um, so I parse out the, the or at least the way I used to do it. I, I parse out the play, play descriptions. So it, it says like, you know, um, you know, quarterback passes to receiver for three yards, right? Completed pass, three yards. I'm able to do it based on the, uh, based on like words to identify what actually happened. I'm, re- I'm I, ha- I have a program that basically is reading it. And so Um, the word pass lets me know that it's a passing play. However, and the word rush let me know it was a rushing play, but Central Michigan had a quarterback named Rush, Cooper Rush. And so I kept having unders on these Central Michigan first halves. This is years ago. And for like, I think it was maybe four or five weeks into the season where I was like, this is absurd. Like, like and so i actually went and looked and i was like wow it says that like almost every play for central michigan was a rushing play but that's not right and then i was like oh my god this is you know and the funny thing is before that i had things like to change like patrick pass to like you know to, remember him like yeah no I was, yeah. Exa- I was just like thinking of a someone
0: named pass and seeing if there was someone named pass
1: no there is yeah yeah
0: that's-
1: is there someone named interception i don't or fumble
0: okay can we go back to um so this was interesting. What you were just saying because it, it actually brings me back to something that we, you and I, had talked about um, many, many months ago, um, before one of our last podcasts. It was around this thing that that uh, Gill had said um, in defending Touts, um, where he was uh, responding to the Sports Handle article about Touts, where he was talking about lumping all all Touts together. And specifically, you know, he was bringing up Dr. Bob and the idea of whether you're able to actually get down on any of Dr. Bob's picks because he does move the market, and the people that bet his picks move the market. So, and then he made the point that many times, or that there are times when those those numbers will come back, and that you're able to bet them. But we we do think that's a, a case of adverse selection where you're only getting the picks where there is strong resistance on the other side, meaning that there are sharp people on the other side, which means that this isn't necessarily one of his best picks per what the market would tell you. So it's almost like in some respects worse because you're only betting, you're only getting to get down on his picks, which there are clearly people that disagree with you and the ones that there aren't, they are disagreeing with you, you're getting at a worse price. So
1: Yeah. That's definitely, you're right, you're right. That is analogous to the second half thing. And it's and I've faced the same issue with the Massey Peabody picks that I give up because if I'm betting on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday and I'm posting these picks on Thursday, I'm posting ones that still have value after they've moved. And a lot of times they're ones that basically there's market resistance to. The ones that I bet and moved and are no longer good, I'm not posting. So it's, it's, it's the same issue there. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing that
0: Gil said that I think was interesting was just this idea of, you know, finding like the the analogies to the financial markets and stock pickers, et cetera. And this is a very strong analogy because most stock pickers don't beat the S&P 500. You know, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who had started a company um, that he eventually sold. It was a company that did like some of the first ETFs and, and you know, he's a very smart financial guy. I was telling him about the concept of house and he's like, that's just like stock pickers because only about 4% of them are actually able to beat the S and P 500. So the analogies are certainly there where it's hard to give information to people and sell information that allows them to beat a market because the market adjusts to that information. If it's good
1: information. It's true. But I do think there is value to people selling information. Like I, I buy data from certain sources. And, right. and it's like, and I, you know, hire people thing, that right. provide information that, you know, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that, like Warren Sharp's book
0: on football is certainly useful to a handicapper. Originally, like the football outsiders book would be very helpful to people, you know, but then the problem is, and, and we, you know, like, this is, again, like a marketing thing. It's how you end up having to market yourself. If you market that you can use this information directly to make picks and you recommend picks, which is what everyone wants. Then all of a sudden there's like this, and I think it's a moral hazard. That's really what I've been thinking about it because you're basically telling people or representing that you can help them make money. And if you don't help them make money, then you're not actually delivering on how you
1: marketed yourself. That's a very good point. And you know, Massey Peabody, when we started, we posted picks because it was a way to sort of show that what we did have, that has value or had value. And because how else do you really had show that? Add value. Add value. Yeah, it, it used to have value, but it's it's the same it's the same issue. If you have data and you you have some process that you think you know, even if the whole point is to help somebody, help you know, the data could be used as part of a bigger process which could be useful. You know, if you know, there's no real way for someone to necessarily quantify how much value or show how much value their product has. I mean, I think it's the easy way to do it, right? It's the yeah, I mean it's something like like Pro Football Focus, for example. I mean, I, I don't know. I think Seth tracked their picks last year, and he said they, you know, I don't think they did very well. But the Pro Football Focus data is definitely is use like has uses. I don't think anybody denies that. But yeah, I
0: think I think so. But I, but but the thing is, the problem is Pro Football Focus, and like this is kind of like at the core of the difference between Pro Football Focus and say what what our friend Ted Knutson is doing at StatsBomb, right? Ted has built that data set that collection with the idea of unleashing it on like on you know basically higher level analytics
1: and yeah.
0: the, the pro football focus data set was not built with that
1: in mind right it was built with well, like what coaches might want or what I mean I feel like they are similar in a way I mean pro football focus's main clients are her are teams aren't they and I mean, Ted's main clients are also teams StatsBomb's main clients are also teams
0: I think the difference is like the you know I think we believe that Ted is uniquely qualified to build out a data set for soccer that is very useful um, for prediction um, whether it's player prediction or whether it's match prediction or strategy whereas I'm not sure if the, the same type of person was involved with pro football focus and I don't really know I mean I know it's Chris Collinsworth thing and they have like this this one guy that runs their analytics piece and whatnot, um, but I've never heard anyone tell me that that's an incredibly useful data set for betting on football. You said you used some of it in your model and had some level of luck with it, but I, I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it.
1: It's, it's something that certainly supplements my model and helps in terms of looking at individual players. I think that's, I'm not giving away the farm when I say that, um, just like, it's a piece of data.
0: What if you were given an opportunity to go back and and work with them on, um, helping them like come up with a new event spec that they use to, to log things, um, that they're, you know, stringers or collectors use to log things. Do you think you would come up with a different event spec or do you think that what
1: they'd have is like closer, close to perfect? No, I think there'd be things, some things I would add. I'd have to think about it though. What What do you think, Jeff? Do you think there are things that you would add? Or do you not know, know how it, much I they track? I don't
0: know it very well, so it's hard for me to talk specifically about it. I just, I guess I just think, and, and I think that this is like more of a broader frustration that I have because I am I am passionate and interested in this like idea of data collection and the idea of, of better data in sports. But I find that like very seldomly do we, do we look at it and feel like that, that if people do that, that that's a very big addressable market for making money. And, you know, pro football focus is often the one that people bring up as, you know, sort of more of a a nice to have than a need to have. And you want your data that you build to end up being a need to have for it to become, you know, a valuable asset. So I guess I just, I guess I'm just like hoping in my mind that you could do a better job on football, because that would mean that, like, there's an opportunity there to, uh,
1: to improve that. Well, I think there's an opportunity on, in just about every sport to have better data. And I think that, I think that maybe you're underselling the value of, of good data. And, and, and I think that there is a huge not, market for not, it, not just like the, among betters, among media and among organizations and teams. So if, if it gives you an advantage in what some way, by
0: huge, what do you mean by huge market? I mean, that, that's, that's the question. Like, you know, there's a finite amount of teams, there's a finite amount of media. Um, so, so the, so the real way that you would do it is through fans and how many fans are willing to pay premium for, for data
1: betters are big, bat, su- big successful batters are willing to pay a lot for, for data. I would think. Well,
0: what if, but then if, like, if it's, if it becomes really successful, then it fails to be proprietary and it fails to give you an advantage.
1: It's true. But it becomes one of these things that you have to I have. Mean, like, if, 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 if you don't have it, it's a big disadvantage. I think that's, you know, honestly, I, I love sports where the data is worse because I don't have, like it, it's, it's cheaper for me. And, and getting, what, what, you know, if I can find a way to get a little bit better data, it, it I gain advantage, but if, 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 everybody has, if, if this data provides some use, then basically, you know, everybody has to have it. You don't want to be working with at an information disadvantage, but I do think teams are willing to pay a good amount um, because, you know, it, it's, it's the same concept, right? I mean, if everybody's, if this provides some signal, then everybody need basically needs to have it because otherwise they're, they're working from a disadvantage.
0: Yeah, I guess. I just don't, I've always wanted to build a data company, and anytime I run the numbers on how valuable the average uh, address—you don't, you know—the expression TAM, T-A-M T no, nice. A M, total addressable market.
1: No, I'm not. I'm not business good. savvy like you.
0: Yeah, t- I actually was saying that today to someone that you weren't
1: very business savvy.
0: <laughs> I learned what KYC means, though. Uh, know your customer. Yeah. There you go. Uh, who was I meeting with this morning? I was meeting with someone this morning and I said, like, oh, I was, I, I had a coffee with Jake Williams this morning. Ah. We were talking about you. So Jake Williams from Sport Radar, who, like, everything he says about the sports betting industry sounds really smart. One, because he knows a lot, and two, because he has an accent. So it's really, you, you just feel like he's, like, way over head and shoulders above you in terms of his ability to articulate things.
1: He has a smart voice. You kind of imagine that he'll be wearing, like, a tweed jacket and, I don't know, in a library. No, no, he was
0: wearing, I think he's like more, I imagine him wearing like a baseball hat and a puffy vest in a Mm. way that
1: like, you know. I'm saying what I imagined before I actually met him.
0: Uh, But we had a long talk about the industry today and like where the industry is going and, and whatnot. Um, So it was, it was, it's pretty fascinating. It's, what's happening right now with all of this land grab for skins and for licenses and, for partnerships, it's um it's pretty interesting. Um I've actually been in, in New York this week meeting with like people in the league and then people in the media and trying to understand
1: the, the lay of the land better. So Jeff, after after understanding the lay of the land a little bit better, I assume, what do you think the future is for some of these states with with like like New Jersey for example, with with all the operators they have now, do you think it's going they're gonna consolidate? Do you think some are gonna be bankrupt? fold up shop if they're gonna be acquired by some of the big ones like in the next few years. I mean
0: I think, I think everyone talks about consolidation right just because I, I mean I don't know like I, I would assume that there's gonna be some bit of consolidation because there's a fair amount of skins in New Jersey. Um, I, I mean I just hope and I really hope I really hope that in 10 years sports betting in the US doesn't look anything like sports betting does in Europe or sports betting looks like here right now or sports betting even looks like in Nevada. I just hope it's a whole different animal. And, you know, how does it get to be that animal? I, I don't know. I, I, I'm much more excited about the, you know, the things that Roxy talks about on our podcast, the idea of, of micro bets and, and things that are sort of in-game and fun and less about, you know, making a bet and then waiting four and a half hours for the outcome of that bet. And then you know, getting that credit in your account, and maybe not getting you credited quick enough to make another bet too soon. Too
1: soon. I mean, but that's yeah. <laughs> Sorry, too soon. I always no, tell people when know. I describe you,
0: I'm like, he almost won the World Series of Sport. Almost won the World Series of Sport. He should have won the World Series of Sport. You, if you had won that, it'd be so much easier to like to like raise your profile when I talk about you.
1: You can just say, say third place, third place, or bronze medal.
0: Yeah, bronze medal. There you go, bronze medal. You were on the podium,
1: though. No, I wasn't. There was a podium. No, there. Were, they, I think they only. I don't think it. It was a weird situation.
0: Nobody, you know, if you have a some chaos around the podium, I was taking yeah. the same analogy that you were taking and taking it one step
1: further. Anyway, I mean, but what so. you're talking about though, these micro bets are still going to be like recreational. I mean, catering to recreational betters, and and it's the kind of thing where. Limits are going to be low, and it's purely designed for the recreational better. And so, there won't be the opportunity for for someone who's trying to actually make income off of those bets to really yeah, do I it. Just, but
0: I don't know if it's I don't know if this industry is headed for one where people are going to be able
1: to make money off of it. But th- think and about so, this, Jeff. Wait, wait here's my big argument. Here. I, I, here's my big argument. We've we've always said that there isn't one sharp side and there isn't one square side, right? The whole notion that you know the narratives around oh the sharps are on this and the squares are on that, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you agree? Yeah. Do we agree. agree that there are sharp betters on both sides of every game at the same at the same number? No, I don't. You understand. disagree. You disagree. I think there are times when that's the case, but I don't think it's always the case. I mean, there's so many sharp betters. I don't know how many there are, what but I mean, there's enough.
0: You, it depends on what you consider sharp better. I mean, I think what you're saying is that everyone can interpret situations differently and everyone can interpret data differently. And at the end of the day, that, you know, that there's, there isn't like one sharp side, which I I, I fundamentally agree with. Although I think many of the analytics that people are doing are now very similar and you see it. I mentioned this to you when we talked about golf like you see you know like cantlay going into a a match and uh, i forgot what which whether it was the us or what which one it was but everyone was on them and then everyone was on you know rom going into the british and there's just like these constant sort of like people that you know based on the fact that people are using more or less the same methods um the
1: method of looking at where the market is
0: no but i mean like strokes gained and then like i don't know i don't want to like talk about everything that you and i have talked about off air but like yeah i mean there's there's certain things that i think that people are are all kind of consistently looking at and um you know because because like the ways to gain advantages and and we go back to the same thing the way to really gain an advantage at this is to have data that no one else has because that's the easiest way to gain an, an information or to gain an edge i think Um, processing that data in a different way is obviously another way to do it, but I feel like that's a bit harder, um, to really differentiate yourself. So it ultimately becomes like having data slash information that nobody has.
1: That's true. And I, and I agree that, that I guess the whole strokes gained being widely available now, um, has, I mean, you, you do have a lot of people being on similar, like the same golfer for the same reasons, but I think that there is another level, um, and, and honestly, actually, I think that sometimes you, you see a lot of, um, a lot of the content out there for golf seems to be sort of really overfitting stuff. I mean, talking about like, oh, you know, these are the stats that matter on this course. It's like, well, okay, I can go see what has the most, has had the most correlation, you know, um, right, but it's almost not, like, it's almost like trying to find like, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's like that's finding more, trends. That's more, that's, that's more content, right? Than it is the
0: actual market. Yes, what I've been correct. like incredibly surprised by um, this golf season is the fluctuations of a guy like Rom, right? Who going into the the U.S., you know, which was right before the British, he was largely like people didn't think he had a chance, and he was not in great form, right? But then going into the British, all of a sudden, I think he was like the third or fourth favorite going into that, and obviously some of that is you know like his lo- knowledge, local knowledge of courses and you know whatnot but like the idea that they that golfer can fluctuate so much from one tournament to the next i thought was really interesting
1: well jeff i mean looking right now john rom missed the cut at the pj championship and missed the cut at fort worth invitational like leading up to the u.s open whereas leading up to the british open he tied for second at the andalusia masters he won and he won the irish open so he obviously was playing a lot better i mean i don't think that's you know, if, if, right. But I mean, like, what do we, maybe the market didn't adjust enough for that. But what do we, what do we, you know, like ultimately
0: that's, that's like this idea of recent form, right. Which in my mind I would immediately go to like recency bias where that something like that would probably be over, overvalued or overrated because like ultimately like, is he as good as he was in the last two weeks or as bad as he was in the two weeks before that? No, he's probably somewhere in the middle and, you know, like the idea that recent form can influence the market so much makes me wonder, like, is that is that an overreaction?
1: Yeah, that's fair. And and I have my DK functions I use. And I mean, but but I think you can, there's, the funny thing is, I think that the DK function should be different for different players if you're doing it correctly. But I don't, I think there's too much noise to actually be able to do that. I mean, just because you could say like a golfer might be, um, you know, the like someone like Tiger Woods, like my, my numbers were, my numbers were high on him this week. Um, although because of the injury stuff, I mean, he's, I wouldn't have advised anybody to play him, but he, um, my numbers were pretty high on him because, um, because the British was, he played poorly at the British, but he hadn't, but that's a year. That's a, the British opens a very different animal from a, a United States event. And so, um, that would, wasn't kind of worth quite as much, but because he hadn't played that many events overall um, this season, you know, D weighting the British open makes these other events worth more and they were further away. And, and with tiger, like we really care about his current form because of the injury stuff. Right. So, so that's why, you know, in that case you would say tiger, like the DK should be way steeper. Like recent form should matter a lot more because what it tells us about his injury history. Whereas, um, and you know, let's say a golfer changed equipment or had a swing change or something, right? Those are things that would suggest that you'd wait recency a little bit more. Um, But those are things that, you know, I don't know. I don't have historical data on that. So I can't figure out like different decay function for if the guy has a swing change. But but some of it's also going to be like confidence and just, you know, you've played golf. I mean, sometimes you have a few swing thoughts that just work for a few rounds and then suddenly they don't. Like I had this one swing thought and I was like, man, I've solved golf. I figured like I'm hitting the ball. I'm taking a divot after every time I'm hitting it straight. Like, and I was hitting like, and then, you know, a few rounds later that, that thought just didn't work anymore. Yeah,
0: I got it. Um, So, you know, uh, I found someone that is going to get me onto Riviera and play Riviera with me.
1: Nice. cool. You you got uh, another another, spot for a third? Uh, yeah, but probably probably won't invite you. Okay, you okay. don't want to you don't want to get embarrassed. But uh, Jeff, wait, going back to going back to what I was saying though about sharps being on both sides. I would venture to guess that there are, let's say, I mean, you could pick almost any game out there and say, okay, like let's say you have a game where the market number is seven. Like there are going to be guys that are sharp that would take minus seven, and guys that are sharp that would take plus seven. And there, and at the same time, there are going to be guys that aren't able to bet or are limited it at a bunch of different books, um, and aren't able to get down at those numbers because they're sharp bettors. And so you have this whole—I mean, I think that there's a ton of um, of action that could be booked that is just sitting out there. I think it's a, it's a smaller slice of the pie for sure. But every, all the operators are going after this, the big slice, which is the recreational betters and it's low hanging fruit. But, but I mean, you got to compete with like DraftKings and FanDuel are spending so much money on marketing. I mean, it's, I think it's a lot of these books are in trouble trying, you know, competing against, um, against those, these huge companies. You know, I think that there is a space in the market for someone to sort of go after like, you know, after the, uh, after the sharps, you know, it's a smaller slice of the market, but it is a slice of the market. And I do think that, um, I, I mean, I, I think my example kind of proves that there is action out there that, that is looking to, uh, be placed, I guess. I don't know how to say that. Right. But do you get what I'm saying here? Yeah.
0: I mean, I think you and I have had this conversation like ad nauseum on this podcast, which is this Idea, you know, the penny model or the exchange and like what is what is the best way to run a bit and, and i just don't i i think from the sportsbooks perspective it's hard to imagine you know one really taking this approach in the u.s the way that the current market is with having to deal with you know, all the things I have to deal with in customer acquisition and whatnot. And, you know, I, I definitely, like, ha, I'm very bearish on sports betting in the U.S., at least in the short term, um, from an opportunity of, like, legalized sports betting. It's just, it's just like, I don't I don't think there's going to be any real innovation from the current players in the market. And I, that worries me.
1: Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm just basically saying that there is an underserved market. There, there are people that are basically not able yeah, to bet like, and and you would and there are people that would be betting on the opposite side there. Like there's,
0: there's, that like, is, a, there's
1: like pent up demand in the market for people that
0: want free cars, right? But no one's going to give them free cars.
1: Yeah, but if one guy would let's say you had a guy that wanted to sell one car and a guy that wanted to buy that same car. But but these other but nobody else would the first guy no like won't buy a car from this guy, like none of the dealerships will buy from this guy. And, and, um, and the other guy can't buy from any of the dealerships. You see what I'm (laughs) saying? It's like, because they're like, Oh, well, you know, because, because they're taking advantage. I I made this analogy. (laughs) Okay. It's like, it's like saying, um, you know, teams didn't trade with, you know, teams not trading with, you know, like again with the Patriots or something. Right. Because the Patriots are smart.
0: Right. And that's why they don't do it.
1: (laughs) I mean, anyways but my point is uh, there are smart people that think that that have opposite opi- uh, that have opposite opinions on games yeah sure maybe it's not sense. like I guess you know but maybe more think, smart people are on minus seven but I don't know if it's the exception. the rule I think
0: it's probably much closer to the exception
1: no I so. I, I, I don't know I tend to think that there are enough um, sharps out there and enough money that you know an exchange would have, even if it just had sharp betters, there would be, um, there is a market for it. I don't know the mechanics of doing it, but I mean, I just think that there's an underserved market here. It's okay. not necessarily the same business model as the sports books right now, but that, that's my belief. That's all I got. Okay. All
0: right, well, I think that's good for now. We droned on for a good 45, 50 minutes. Um, thanks for joining us. Uh we'd love feedback on format ideas for the football podcast.
1: And didn't you want to talk about NFL preseason, Jeff? We we had we had uh exhaustive notes for this podcast. We had preseason NFL, Twitter. No,
0: I don't think we need to talk about
1: preseason NFL. Okay. Looks good. We can talk about that
0: next week. Okay? So, all right, thank god. Dedicated analytically driven media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is falls down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppies are about to and running off a ledge.